Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are five nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab your abseiling kit, make sure you flare off any excess time, and join us on our journey through Pyramids and the Complete Discography. Tonight we are discussing uh, and trying not to be too mean to uh, Pyramids, the seventh book in the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett. This one was published... Uh, first it was published in 1989. So this is when he really starts cranking them out. I think there's like one or two books a year at this point. Uh, it is a rather chunky book and, uh, deals with some stuff that the four of us didn't feel like we were entirely capable to discuss. So we brought on uh, a friend, a very smart person and, uh, a lot of fun to work through some of these more touchy issues with Amaraz. They are a game designer, podcaster, and all-around nerd. Uh, You can hear them rambling about math on Twitter. Uh, An editorial note, their dice uh, threads are fascinating. Uh, As a player on the Playtest podcast, or you can find their game design in itch.io and a variety of other projects, we will have links to their work in our show notes. So, did I cover everything? Do you want to give us any additional background? I don't think so. Hi, uh, I'm Amr. I'm happy to be here. Uh, this is my first Discworld book. I'm we so apologize. sorry. Yeah, I, uh, we, we are very apologetic for, about that. I did not know that's what we were doing to you. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm also very glad that you're on because uh, it's good to actually discuss some of the things that Terry doesn't do well. Uh, and this, I think we're coming a, coming to the conclusion, is one of them. Just because they are a hero, uh, Armour has uh, volunteered to <laughs> summarize the book for us, uh, which we won't ask of any other guest. Uh, well, do we, want to, do we want to give our titles? Oh, yeah. Do yeah. we do yes. the whole intro? Uh, I am Aaron, uh, winner of the Tepic Award for Clear Thinking Zero Times Running. I'm Anna, and I'm currently thinking of moving into the aqueduct industry. It seems like a good place to be. I am Justin, and I prefer the number two throwing knife. I am in a 2A, not Illa, no matter how many times you read it that way by accident. Read it that way right up until now. Hi, I'm Amr Emeraz and Amr Emeraz and Amr Emeraz and Amr Emeraz and dot 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 onto infinity. Yeah, I every time I switch back to the ebook from the audiobook, I read them wrong. I I see. I just kind of read it as I L A because that's it looks exactly the same. I didn't even get what you were doing exactly on the, the typing same. there. It looks <laughs> just use the I with like the oh. head and the lower. Anyways. Hey! Oh, I thought that was uh, a cloak joke. Oh, the, uh, I thought there, I thought we got two cloak jokes in a row. But I'm like, oh, okay. I'm ta- I'm talking about how fucking difficult it is to parse the names of the yeah. kids. Yep. 
Which is also, I feel like, the first clone joke before the book makes the second clone jokes. But before we get to clones, we have to talk about the Assassin's Guild. Uh, so the book starts off with the Book of Going Forth, uh, book one, because this book is broken into four books. And we open up with the classic description of the disc, which I've been informed is at the start of most of these books, or at least a lot of them, a description of a two-wing kind of crawling through the cosmos. And uh, at least I've gathered that from listening to this podcast, which you should, uh, which I assume you are if you're hearing me right now. But <laughs> we find out about the magic pyramid flares. Uh, nothing more about that except they exist. Uh, and there's a quick shot of this person, Dios, leaving the weirdest bedroom that most people don't tend to leave. Uh, and we cut to our main character for this book, Tepic, from, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Jelibayabi. Jelly Baby. Yes, Jelly, Jelly Baby. baby. Yeah. That's what it's supposed Jelly to be. Jelly Baby. It's a joke about Jelly a British baby. sweet. <laughs> When I, when like I first read baby? it and I was informed of this the last episode, there was many eye rollings that he had. All right. So Jell from now on, because I refuse to call it Jelly Baby, uh, <laughs> is, is a kingdom that is styled after Egyptian aesthetics and it's where Tepic is from. And he is a assassin in training. Uh, and we follow his going through the assassin trial, which is the graduation ritual. Uh, where he does first a quiz and then a climbing ceremony where his master attempts to kill him a bunch of times, and then he has to commit murder. This bit has a fun narrative device where they interweave uh, flashbacks with a lot of what was going on in uh, Tepic's upbringing, as well as some of the current happenings in Gel at the time. So we get some more context as to who Tepic is and what the Assassin Guild high school experience is like. Uh, also, Tepic even though he was really hoping not to get the hardest master for the test, naturally gets the hardest master, but managed to succeed through a fluke of luck. Uh, now, I can't tell you what actually happens in the final trial, because everyone is sworn to secrecy, but I can tell you that he shoots a crossbow in the intent to miss and fail, but through, like, four different ricochets, ends up hitting and killing the target, which turned out to be a dummy and not a sleeping person. Uh, after that, he goes to... A post-celebration with his friends Arthur and Chitter, who also graduated successfully. Uh, they go eat some food, get drunk with uh, reannual wine, with, and it explains a headache that they had earlier. And then they get attemptedly mugged in the streets. This is interrupted by the death of his father, who jumps out of the window, as best as I can tell, uh, and has a fun conversation with Death. Death is really cool. That was nice. And then uh, Tepic ascends into godhood for about 12 hours or so, in that a weird seagull shows up and lands on his arm, terrifying all the people who are going to murder him and his friends. Uh, and then he gets access to omnipotence, which he promptly forgets, but remembers just enough to charter a boat from his friend Chitter, who claims that is a legitimate commerceman, but turns out to be working as a smuggler of sorts, and uses that to get back home. Finally, Tepic returns home, resolutely knowing that he is never going to leave this place again. Then we get book two, The Book of the Dead, in which Tepic becomes a pharaoh and realizes, ah, uh, crap, that's a lot of work. Uh, Dios, who is the head priest that we met a little bit in the last chapter, or last book, runs everything, up to and including the pharaoh's life, appearance, and has a near-unbreakable will that makes it so that you can't really oppose anything he says, because he will just keep repeating it until you have to do what he says. Uh... We get a subplot here that follows the ghost of King Tepekimon XXVII, uh, who is Tepek's dad, 
as he just kind of chills around and watches his own body get mummified and embalmed and whatnot, uh, and gets to learn some very cool friendships with the embalmer and his apprentice, Dill and Gurn, who he never really meets, uh, or never really gets to chat with because he's a ghost, and, well, they are not ghosts. Then uh, we get back to more Tepic and Dio's having a give-and-pull relationship, but this results in them arguing over how the dad should be buried. And the dad did not want a pyramid, but Dios insists there must be one. So Tepic goes, fine, out of spite, we will build the biggest pyramid ever. And then just keeps approving more and more features until the pyramid architect is like, okay, so just everything? And Tepic's like, yes, do everything. So with that done, uh, we get to meet the actual pyramid uh, architect and his family. The cults. Let me try it again. Tikalusp, IIA and IIB, 2A, 2B, as I've been just informed, uh, because apparently he's named his sons the Accountant, A, and the Cosmic Mathematician, a.k.a. Magician, B. Uh, they begin construction on the pyramid uh, using their newfound uh, permissions from the king to build the giantest pyramid to ever have pyramid. Then we have a interesting dream sequence with Tepic, who dreams about a bunch of historical stuff, including seven fat cows and seven thin ones playing a trombone, uh, a man firing arrows at a tortoise, and then a pyramid that ate the world and shrunk so tiny it disappeared with the world still inside it. Uh, afterwards, we get more following the king around, and we see the progress of the pyramid, including the use of magician magic to turn the pyramid blocks and make them float and self-construct, and some time magic happens, including the accidental leaking of time into the creation of Time Loop, which the Tukulsp family uses to create doppelgangs, clones of themselves and their employees, in order to construct the pyramid faster, because Dios demanded it be built in three months. Uh, there's some meetings with the other nations, including Sort and Ephib, and there's zero agency for Tepic in this, even though he was hoping to do some politics, as well as some trials, where every time he tries to make a fair and equitable rule, Dios kind of comes in and says, this is the historical president interpreting the pharaoh's words to be whatever Dios determines is the right rule in this scenario. And this is where we meet Trashy. Trashy is a king's handmaiden who refused to commit suicide when the king died, which would have allowed her to join him in the underworld and sort of gain a place of status in the neverworld and in the second life. However, because she refused to take this voluntary act, she was sentenced to death, uh, which Tepic tried to fight against and failed as a king, so tried again as an assassin breaking her out in the middle of the night, uh, and then coming again the next evening to try to get her all the way out. However, they get caught by Dios and a bunch of guards, and as they are about to be killed, time goes funky, because the giantest pyramid to ever pyramid had a lot of time magic in it that wasn't properly contained, and the world goes wonky. Tepic and Trashy make a daring escape on the smartest mathematician in the Discworld, you bastard, the camel. And then... Jell disappears behind them, with Tepic and Trashy safe on the outside of Jell, but an entire valley has disappeared. And then, inside the wherever Jell is, we get one final scene where the sun rises, but oh, there's a giant dunk beetle pushing it? Then there's Book 3, the Book of the New Sun. Tepic is confused as to how an entire country can just disappear. Uh, Tepic and Trashy continue on a journey. They start doing some bonding and chatting on their way to Ephib and talk about stuff like democracy and the vet. Uh, meanwhile, in Jell, the gods are real. Oh, shit. Also, mummies are walking. Double shit. Uh, 
We then make our way to Ephib. We meet tortoise shooters, Zeno and Ipid, who are philosophers trying to prove that if you shoot an arrow at a tortoise and the tortoise is moving, the arrow can never hit the tortoise. We meet some more philosophers who do a lot of weird uh, parody of philosophizing. And then back in jail, the priests struggle to figure out what to do without the king. Dios is confronted with change for the first time in his existence. And Kumi, who is this priest, has been trying to oust Dios but can never do. So makes a power play, which fails again, as all his attempts have. Uh, Tepic eventually makes his way to Ephib and finds his old buddy Chitter from the Assassin's Guild. They catch up, Crashly dunks on a sailor with casual talk of sex positions, and then... Tepic and Chitter pass out where Tepic has a dream of all of his ancestors and how a camel helped Hooft, the first ancestor, find the valley out of a desperate need for water. Meanwhile, King Tepicimon uh, and his embalmers, Dylan Gurn, go raise an army of the dead by giving Gurn a sledgehammer who then smashes all the seals on the pyramids, allowing all the other mummies free. And, you know, King Tepicimon has a reunion with all his long dead family members. This book ends with Tepic jumping off the boat that he that Chitter owns. He rides you bastard off into the desert without a hat and passes out as a, and passes out as a result. He gets found by the Ephi- and by an Ephivian and Sortian soldier who engage in some Taika Waititi style conversational humor, and the book ends. Uh, then there's book four, the book of one hundred and one things a boy can do. Uh, it starts off with one of my personal favorite tropes, the Sphinx, which exists in a dimensional pocket, and through fast topic talking, Tepic makes it tricking. Uh, let me retry that. It exists in a dimensional pocket, and through fast talking, Tepic tricks it into asking him the same riddle twice, which he then solves because he knows the solution, and runs away before it figures it out. Uh, back in jail, the priests fail to control the gods. The army of the dead continues to march until they find the first pyramid, only to discover that the, it was already empty, the seals were broken, and there were already recent markings. Also, one of the torches was burning up backwards. You know, the ash was turning back into straw. That's weird. Uh... Meanwhile, Tepic finds the valley and reascends into godhood as grass continues to grow around his legs and he bends an entire river valley to allow himself to cross, while people fight off alligators with stones in a desperate bid for revenge. Meanwhile, the two armies approach, both the Sortian and Amphibian army, who were had a constant historical feud that was kept apart by Jell's existence as a neutral ground, uh, and since Jell is gone, they decided to go to war, because why not? And also the army of the dead versus the army of the priests. The mummies confront Dios and realize that they've all known him for all 7,000 years of existence, uh, and try to, you know, say, hey, that's weird, please don't, but Dios brings them to bear with his staff and force of will. Tepic talks to... to Kulps... Tepic talks to the architects and begins to scale the pyramid to use his knife, which would allow the main pyramid to flare and undo all of this. The gods, the gods try to stop this, which distract Dios, freeing the army of the dead who create a human pyramid to help Tepic get to the top, allowing it to flare freely. Jell then restores its dimensional alignment and returns to its proper place in the world. The mummies are all freed from their eternity of being trapped in the pyramid, and the world returns to normalcy. We get a Final scattershot epilogue of Tepic trying to restore order and then handing the rule to Trashy, who he learns is his half-sister, which we've known for about two books now. And then we get the army standing down, Peace being broker, as well as Trashy starting to push for change under her leadership, which is much to the chagrin of her new head priest, Kumi. Tecalsis get into bridges and aqueducts, and finally, Tepic and New Bastard head off into a future unknown. The last scene we get is the first ever scene, in a certain sense, which is Dios back in his place of beginning, founding Jell for the first time. Yeah, that, that was a good summary. 
Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts to this book, but actually like fairly few main characters, a lot of like groups of 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 people. So like Tepic obviously is is our perspective, I guess, character. He is the current scion of of this line, uh, unbroken supposedly line of of uh kings, right? Uh, but they've sent him off to deal with the financial woes of the uh, country by becoming an assassin, which is significantly more lucrative. I kind of described Tepic as Rincewind with knives uh, in that plot kind of happens at him and as opposed to him being a major driver of things. Well, it's interesting as well, um, because this book doesn't really have, um, it doesn't really have any major antagonists as part of the plot. There's Dios, who is, is sort of an antagonist and that he wants to keep things the way that they are. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's all about dealing with the weird happenings with the pyramid, um, there's not really any struggle against a specific antagonist in this one. I love a book that's all about all of these decisions that people made. You see how they blow up into something bad. I was like feeling something familiar in this book, and I don't think it was making me think of a Terry Pratchett book so much. It was kind of reminding me of like a Michael Crichton book in that you're like with all these different characters who are basically dooming themselves in small ways yeah you it's a situation that unravels right that's that's what mm-hmm. sort of Crichton books seem to go go on yeah and I, I love that and the way it cuts between to make that happen the, the closest there is to like an antagonist is Kumi is almost Dios's antagonist and vice versa and that's just completely a one-sided conflict yeah it's like I think we get presented as with uh, with Dios as like an attempt at an antagonist, but it's all entirely one-sided because Dios is just like unbreakable. Implacable. (laughs) Dios is is less an antagonist and more a force of nature. Uh, Mm -hmm. And like, he's the head priest of Jell and rules the country using the Pharaoh as a figurehead. Uh, And we find out by the end of the book, he's been ruling it since the formation of the country because he's the first Pharaoh. Uh, who's been using the pyramid to cheat time. And possibly ruling it in a loop forever. So Patracy is, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think that the audiobook narrator pronounces the P's at the beginnings of the words, so I'm just going to do that. Uh, Patracy is a former handmaiden, um, which isn't as bad as it could be, but she had the training for, you know what, we're not going to think too hard about the handmaidens because I just don't want to do that. Uh, but she's also a very chattery. Uh, she does not want to die, uh, which is what people want her to do because the whole, you know, all the servants dying to go into the afterlife with the pharaoh thing. Instead, um, Tepic helps her escape and they go off on adventures. She's very much a uh, no-nonsense Terry Pratchett kind of gal. Can I talk about you, bastard? 
Please. You can talk about your bastard. <laughs> Surprisingly, the 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 non-anthropomorphic character was Justin's favorite of the book. Ooh, what a surprise. Um, and it was named you bastard. It was named you bastard. Oh my god. Um so we gotta talk about camels. Because um in, in Discworld, camels are the most intelligent creatures. Who um, have, and they are also the most clever creatures because they have determined that if you're if you show humans you're smart like dolphins, they'll want you to go like disarm bombs or go to SeaWorld and be horribly abused. Um, <laughs> camels just want to do, they just want to do physics. Um, which honestly, yeah, and so so you bastard is the greatest mathematician in the world. Um, and, um, it, it is specifically the, the great use of camels for their knowledge of, of higher mathematics and physics is so that they can perfectly, uh, shoot cud. Um, <laughs> but also it gets very boring out in the desert. So why not do some higher level mathematics? I think we're pretty sure that, um, the dolphins jokes in this book are a shot at, uh, Douglas Adams. Uh, I, 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 I do not know how friendly Terry and Douglas were. Uh, I'm going to assume, like the Ed McCaffrey stuff we had in Color of Magic, that it's at least semi-friendly. Based on the writing style, like this is my impression as someone who had not read Discworld or Terry Pratchett stuff at all before, it felt like at the very least they came from a similar school of writing. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like it's possible that even Terry took some influences from Douglas Adams, the way I would read it in timeline-wise, is I would read this like, oh, this is influenced by Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, as, as a first-time reader. And so, like, I feel like at the very least it wasn't antagonistic or he would be avoiding Terry. Yeah. Or he would be avoiding Douglas's work and style. Uh-huh. They definitely have a similar writing style in terms of uh, descriptions and stuff like that, that the little clever ways of describing the world and the plot really are are in both. It's the kind of dry British wit. We also had a lot of side characters in this one. Not to put you on the spot, Justin, but you commented several times on how much you loved the, uh, the, the embalmers. I think for me, it was the, the builders. Oh, okay. Um, who are the, the, the family of the Toclusps. The Toclusps? I'm trying to, um, who um, have been in the pyramid making business for a while, as well as various other public works. Uh, the the father uh, Toclips has the uh, runs the business. Uh, Toclips two A is an accountant, and two B is a um, quantum cosmic architect, um, uh, which through various shenanigans we create time loops. And um, various shenanigans to pay multiple instances of people the same coin. And I love time travel bullshit, especially when it makes my head hurt. Yeah, there's a lot of time travel headaches. I I also love that one, the interplay sort of between science and capitalism, essentially. It's like... (laughs) Because uh, we get two B's, like oh look at all this cool science stuff. All right, we can we can make time loops and two A's, and the dad are just like, 
we can just hire a bunch of people. And to be like, this could backfire. And to a and that are like, money, work, do it. <laughs> I work at a place with an engineering school and a business school, and I see a lot of um, business school students taking advantage of engineering school students. Engineers have never done anything wrong. They're they're wonderful people. I, I come from a family of engineers and have none of their talents. We've done a lot wrong. Don't tell Justin. What's that? <laughs> oh, I whispered. Uh, so. They've done a lot wrong. <laughs> oh well. I said, I said we've done a lot wrong. Oh. <laughs> We, I mean, there's also sort of a rotating cast of of major and minor priests, and we. I'm not sure it's worth really discussing the young assassins that he's with. Although I did enjoy the scene where uh, what's his name is um, is busily trying to sacrifice a, a, a goat in an Omnian ritual, and people get on him for doing his bedtime prayers. We, there's also Dylan Gurn, who are honestly two of my favorite characters in this. They're the embalmers, and they just have this great camaraderie that's kind of no nonsense regarding what they're doing, and it's it's really enjoyable. I think, Justin, you had a few things to say about their about them, right? I did. Uh, oh, I did have a note that um, for through Dylan Gurn, like I'm very sure that Terry knew a coroner. <laughs> um, because okay, they're um modern mo- like this didn't really become a trope until about like 15, 20 years ago with CS. I think CSI or like. Or like late '90s Law and Order was the first thing to introduce this trope of like ridiculously assholishly snarky corners, um, which is a real thing. It's based on real life because to work with dead people, you have to have a very specific personality. And I'm very sure that Terry knew some corners. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it felt like every time Dylan Gurn came up, I was watching a procedural uh, where they visited the morgue. Yeah. They were very enjoyable as characters. So I felt like this uh, this book had a little bit more to be confused about. I, I think because there was uh, maybe so many kind of balls in the air. I had a couple of questions. So the first is, how old is Tepic? We were talking about this and I think we came down on like somewhere between 18 and 21, maybe. Yeah. At one point, he says, he mentions a woman who he had known back in sixth form, and the way he says it suggests that sixth form was, like, at least, like, not the last thing that he did at school. So that would be, like, ages 16 to 18. So he's at least older than 18, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely... I was gonna say, he definitely felt, like, at most my age. So... I wouldn't put him much older than 20. Yeah. I would have gone with like 18 to 21 as well. In particular, based on the scenes where 
he and his classmates are having their night on the town. And the other thing that I was confused about is I felt like I must have missed something with that that dream about the, the fat cows and the thin cows and the trombone. It's a biblical reference. Let me tell you why I know about this. It's not because of my six years of divinity lessons. It's because of Joseph, King of Dreams, the animated movie that's like the lesser twin of Prince of Egypt. <laughs> it's one of Joseph's prophetic, or is it prophetic dreams? He has these weird, like, symbolic dreams about... He goes, they're, uh, they, I can't remember exactly why they, the, the Israelites end up in Egypt, but um, the Pharaoh is having these dreams about... Uh, fat oh, cows right. and thin cows and and yada 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 the, the Joseph makes like a call about you know storing grain in, in anticipation of a famine that's right I forgot it was Pharaoh's dreams I think Joseph also has weird dreams there's a lot of weird dreams in that one I mean it's the Bible yeah Two, two things there. One is like when I when I read that, I just assumed it was oh, this is a recurring ancestral dream that every one of them had. I didn't necessarily assume there was some significance. But also the moment you were like, oh, this is this Bible reference. I was like, oh, that's right. I know the story because there's there's a fun thing that happens with a lot of Bible stories is that they're also like because almost every prophet that appears in the Bible appears in Islam plus some more, but with Arabic names. So. I don't automatically make those connections. You're talking about Joseph. I'm like, Joseph, Joseph. And you're like, ah, yes, the dream interpreter. Oh, okay. I know this story. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, coming from coming from a Jewish background, I'm like, oh, you know, Passover. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. I got nothing. I, I, I'm, I'm so last. I'm so lapsed on my biblical stories that I don't think, I don't even think I get like the like lapsed Protestant uh, card anymore. I'm confirmed in the Episcopal Church, and I don't remember almost anything I learned in all of the many lessons that I had. <laughs> I remember a lot about Passover because there's really good food. Passover is fun. I've been to a Seder dinner. But, yeah, I just happened to remember that because of an animated movie from the 2000s. <laughs> so I have a question about this book. When they're in a Phoebe... And we're gonna get to like my further like bits on a theme. There is a conversation, just one conversation in the book, where uh, Tepic and Tracy start adding P's to the starts of their words that start with T's. Right. That's my because question first. They have a Jellybabian accent speaking Ephibian. Uh, and this okay, is back from okay. uh, ew. The the ye oldie days of writing out accents being a really good idea. Spoiler, <sighs> it was never a good idea. Chris Claremont is your just voice. Chris Claremont is just like looking over my shoulder right now. I have so many feelings, not just about the way accents are written, but I typically get through most of the books via audiobook. And the narrators do voices. There was less of that this time. I will say, thank God, I do not think I could have dealt with that much of doing, uh, frankly, racist accents. Uh, but yeah, it's always a lot. 
my one question was so when the when gel disappeared uh it was explained that the pyramid not being properly flared made it go into a 90 degree dimensional spin which took it out of our sort of dimensional perception but then the gods show up there. Are the gods showing up in that 90-degree parallel dimension at this world thing, or is that just a this book thing? I think it's somewhere in the middle. It's a it's sort of a, a dimension next door kind of thing. Uh because the, the, the major difference is that like everything is true. It's it's similar to what we talked about in well, what four of us talked about in Mort, which is like everybody gets the death that they think is coming to them. This is sort of a a follow-on to that. Like, what if everything is true? Because, you know, suddenly there's like five sun gods um, fighting over the sun. I think it's more a representation of things getting twisted. Just like uh, Taklas, uh, was it 2B who got smushed? No, 2A. 2B was the scientist who stayed around to explain stuff to us. Right, right, right. Yeah, he he gets he, his dimensions get like twisted in a different direction. It's like the n-dimensional version of the right hand rule. I God damn it, Aaron! <laughs> what? What? Damn it, Aaron! <laughs> I, my brain's gonna break oh. thinking about that too much. <laughs> oh, I just what googled is, this. What is this curse? So it, it's it, the right hand rule is a vector rule where if you hold your right hand up in a L shape with the thumb out and your four fingers up, you can use the palm going outwards as well as the directions your fingers are pointing to determine which way the, I think it was cross product of the two other vectors are going to go. Uh, So you can use it to figure out like what happens when you combine vectors. Uh, So if you have like one that points along both your hand or both your fingers and your thumb, it would go out your palm as an example. I'm going to be That's real here. Right. I uh, don't know right. what a vector is. Yeah. <laughs> we're a Discworld podcast. Like, our entire thing is we are reading through a 41-book fantasy series. This may be the nerdiest shit we've ever talked about on here. It's great. I Thank you so much for explaining. <laughs> you need to dumb it down so much more, and I just need to Google I, it. <laughs> Aaron and Anna, let's start a podcast where we just go through the math of Discworld. That would actually be fun. <laughs> so I actually have a I have a book on my I have a book on my shelf called Discworld and the Disciplines. So I seem to remember there also being a right hand rule for current as well, right, or something yes, like that. It's similar. I, I can I can go over the, the super basic math at the end if we want, <laughs> or I can explain it now. I don't know if you want that on your audio though. It's <laughs> fine. I'm just gonna stop looking at my hand. I. I remember reading this book. I really do. But I remember like just a couple of pieces of it. I remember like, I remember the time travel stuff. I remember the, the gel or not the gel, the uh, Dios loop. I remember like the, the Taklasp, uh, Taklasp family fun. I didn't remember the Ankh Park stuff, which was great. But yeah, like it's speaking as somebody who, who's read nearly all of the books, like <sighs> This is really a one-off. It's it really is this weird little pocket, and you know I think we might sort of find out why. I've also read it before, and I really didn't remember most of the details. Other than that, I remembered that it was fun to read. I remembered the the bits with time being wibbly wobbly. And I remember the bit where Tepic 
has to climb the pyramid and make it flare by holding up a knife. But pretty much the entire rest of it, I did not remember. So it was it was kind of fun to kind of rediscover some of those bits. Yeah, I, I remembered the specifically like I remembered the part where Ephib and Sort, all of their armies are both sitting in wooden horses waiting for the other one to take the wooden horses. <laughs> that, yeah. that was something that, that like that I distinctly day. remembered because it was so dumb. And reading again, I definitely with, with a more critical eye, I still found it a fun read, but definitely there's some some problems. Um, I'd love to have seen how Terry would have rewritten this closer to the end of his life. Um, that I think it would have been much more interesting book then. I don't know if I would have advised he revisit it, frankly. <laughs> yeah, well, not not necessarily this exact book, but you know, some of the there's some there's some interesting stuff in there. It's just um, there's a lot of stuff that should not be in there. I just don't trust him with his non-European analog countries. I enjoy just the, yeah, (laughs) some of them are. So my initial thoughts on this are, I think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of interesting elements here that are like, I think Tepic is, if we're going to have a sort of reactionary reader analog character, I think Tepic is a much more fun character than Rincewind. Um, and it feels like there's like, it's it's like, it it feels like there is a lot of good puzzle pieces here to make an interesting thing. The Assassin's Guild shit is so good. And I'm, and we're we're gonna get to this in the fan fiction shipping corner, whatever. (laughs) There's an entire book here for the Assassin's Guild that we're missing, and this is a crime. But it feels like the plot is sort of like a moving target, it is perhaps a tortoise that is outrunning the arrow of the writing. <laughs> I'm going to agree that there's a bunch of puzzle pieces, but I'm actually going to go back to that Michael Crichton reference because the second that I thought of that, that kind of clicked like the reason that I. The thing that I do enjoy about this book, which is that you've got all of these pieces and all of these decisions that come together to make just a snowball. And I do like the way that he uses like the multiple points of view and like cutting back and forth between those fairly quickly to really like build that up. I actually enjoyed that about it. Um, On the other hand, uh, my impression, if we weren't doing the podcast, I don't think I'd be reading this book. (laughs) Because, again, uh, distrust, and I don't enjoy when he tries to do non-European stuff, because it's it's mm, a problem. Uh, Is this a book you had read before? No. I would not have chosen to... That's what I'm saying. I would not have chosen to read this. You're the one who's like a coin flip, or sort of like... Yeah. Like, has, has much more variance in what you've read. Except for color... All of the ones that I've read before are ones that I really was interested in reading, and Pyramids is not one that would have drawn me. So, like, if we weren't doing the podcast, I probably would never have read it. So, I guess I kind of have two sets of reactions. The first one, as I was reading it, uh, I was enjoying the Assassin's Guild stuff. Uh, 
it started off with that and that was fun. Then the moment, the first second we cut to Jelly Bean. <laughs> um, <laughs> or Jelly Baby. What is it? Jelly Baby, right? Yeah. The mo- the first moment we cut to Jelly Baby, uh, I was like, oh, here we are. It's begun. Uh, like, I think I agree with Mino that if I was reading this on my own, I probably would have put it down. Depending on how far I managed to get before I put it down, I would either try to find the book with more Ankh Morkpur because I'd really enjoyed the Assassin Guild book at the start. Or if I'd made it far enough to meet Death, I would have immediately put it down and, like, picked up a Death book. Uh, because Death was interesting, but the book wasn't pulling me. Uh, and, like, I probably would not have finished it if not for the podcast. But made it through, and I, I was like... As I was reading, I was waiting for a plot to, like, hook me. And I made it till like, most way through book three till the plot started happening uh, at a rate that was like, okay, if I had made it this far, I would finish it on my own accord. But then going back to the summary is a thing I'm really glad I did. Because as a series of events where I don't have to zoom in on the racist shit that we'll talk about later, uh, it's actually got a lot of fun pieces. Like, I enjoyed writing the summary. I enjoyed reading the summary because there's a lot of cool thematic bits here and there when you look at it after without having to read a lot of the specifics wait again first first discworld novel thank you for toughing through it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean like if i if i had read that as the only discworld novel by myself there's a chance i might not have touched another discworld novel especially if like there wasn't this sort of general public popularity for terry pratchett i would have immediately like if this was a random offer i would have immediately thrown it away pretty fast but because there's this sort of thing for terry pratchett i probably would have given one of the other books a second chance to like one of y'all and be like hey uh what discworld book should i be reading yeah yeah it it sits in this weird so there's like these there's a bunch of different sort of official threads in the 41 books that make up discworld uh 41 plus some others uh and this one sits in this weird little pocket of uh, two books that are sort of like philosophy um, sort of, and between this and small gods, I would infinitely recommend small gods, uh, because it takes a lot of the, the things that he experiments with in pyramids and really does a much better, weirder, but much better job, um, in, in small gods. Uh, do we want to talk about themes? Did this book have themes? though? <laughs> I would argue it has themes, but I would reject that it has a thesis. Because I think it explores a lot of ideas, but then fails to make a statement on any of them, really, in, in a decisive way, one way or another. Yeah, it, it's sort of like the theme. The themes are like experimented with and played around with. And then a lot of the declarative statements that he makes are tangential. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing that I really pulled out was that it's another identity book. Uh, because a lot of the character conflict comes comes in in the the sort of the tug and push of uh, what's expected of you versus what you want to do, uh, which we've seen a few times before at this point. Uh, you know, Tapic really feeling like he should be an assassin when he's expected to be a god king. Uh, Tracy developing into a full person when she's with the removed from the restrictions of her role. Um, Dios is an entirely separate issue. Uh, you bastard, especially because nothing's expected of them except being a camel. So they can go into the higher echelons of pure math uh, and nobody's the wiser. 
So, I have a tangential question. Like, okay, Tepic is good at being an assassin, but does he actually want to be an assassin? Because he is rather still, I think, sketchy on the whole part of inhuming. Yeah, I don't I don't think he wants to be. Like, I think he's satisfied that the one thing he had to inhume was an inanimate object, and he's happy to take that win and call it a night. So my take is almost that... Because it seems like he decided he wanted to be an assassin because, like, he had an uncle who did and came back with stories, and it's almost like maybe he wanted to go explore and see someplace else. Yeah. And also the... He wanted to- they've sort of established that the, the kingdom is in perpetual financial trouble because of all these damn pyramids. Um, <laughs> so he's sent off. Yeah. Could be. I also get the impression that Assassin, Assassin Guild is like a boarding school with a good reputation and they didn't really have another one that was willing to offer such standards of education. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, we'll put up with our son being an assassin because he's getting good schooling. Yeah. I also really liked the way that this book delved into um, the nature of gods on the disc. And this is, I think, the first exploration of that and this kind of notion that the gods exist because people believe in them. And I really liked the places where Tepic manifests his divinity, um, especially when he encounters the crowd of people who believe in him and... Um, foom, grass feet. A very unimpressive uh, Super Saiyan transformation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. See, I would disagree with that because I think there's a lot of cultural backing to the makes grass go yeah. grow wherever they walk. Oh yeah, that's that's fair. Mm-hmm. But... No, it it's 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 a less flashy sort of like divinity mode, but it, it it's understated but powerful. I think, mm-hmm. and that the first time it happens, he's just like, oh, there's this weird grass. All right, whatever. He's probably sick. Take him to a doctor. But later on, we sort of get the understanding that this is a symbol that he can use. Also, I like how, like, the, the Ankh-Morparkian response to grass is growing around him. Let's take him to a doctor. Which in and the doctor's answer yeah, is, Which in Ankh-Morpork is a risky proposition anyway. And, and I love that they take, took him to the Assassin's Guild doctor, who then just pronounced him to be dead because... Does the Assassin's Guild doctor ever deal with anyone who's not dead? <laughs> so the Assassin's Guild doctor is a necromancer. <laughs> the Assassin's not Guild yet. doctor is actually We're a great touchstone go. for my own theme thing. <laughs> I just think there's a big thing in this book of like, people see the world the way they want to see it and they will change all of the data that's the whole thing behind Dios, but I think we see it crop up again and again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason that, that it happens, you know, I, I'm not sure that why it happens the first time, except with, you know, the the sort of uh, ascension to godhood thing. But, like, the reason that, that Tepic has all of those powers once he gets into the presence of, of believers is because of the belief, right? That's not even what I'm talking about, though, because we have had a lot of belief makes magic happen, but we haven't as I think we haven't as keenly seen like the non-magic side of that where it's just people's brains are. Well, okay, that's a lie. What it's most like to me is the way that people can't see death because they don't expect him to be there or they because that's not part of their worldview. 
but then this has become like a central plot. There's there's an interesting line towards the end of book two that I'm trying to find where Tepic says to Dios, come on, you know I'm your king. And Dios goes, you are not my king. My king would not act like this. I know who my king is. <laughs> that's that's a good line. Um, yeah, especially in retrospect. Uh, I don't think it's the exact line, but I am the king, damn it. Oh, there we How go. could I it kill is. myself? We are not stupid. These men know the king does not skulk the palace at night or consort to condemn criminals. All that remains for us to find out is how you disposed of the body. And I'm like, ah! You're supposed to say, and let the girl go, he said. Oh, yes. And that too, said Tepic. No, I would be failing in my duty to the king, said Dios. For goodness sake, Dios, you know I am the king. No, I have a very clear picture of the king. You are not the king, said the priest. Dios in particular was really interesting because he's this, he's an antagonist. Um, you're kind of representing tradition, etc. But he's not a villain by any means. I will say, though, I have never wanted anybody to die so badly in Discworld. <laughs> or at least to, like, disappear immediately and completely. I also feel like he gets a punishment worse than death. Yeah. Doesn't he want that, though? He just seems so tired by the end. Yeah. Yeah, it, he he thinks he wants that because he's forgotten everything. He's almost forgotten how it started or yeah, who he was. He's fair. just been in a 7,000-year loop that he assumes is what he wants and he assumes it's his duty or the right thing to do, but 7,000 years of memory kind of jumbles up into a, a pattern. And it's quite the curse to just relive the same 7,000 years over and over again. Yeah, you gotta wonder what his lifetimer looks like in, in Death's Domain. <laughs> oh god. It's like a, it's what's, it's a Klein bottle. <laughs> I was thinking like it's a water, it's like a, it's like one of those like kitschy waterfalls. Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about this sort of overarchingly, but I think the religion, broadly speaking, without attacking anybody except maybe ancient Egyptian religions, which we can talk about again later, uh, is sort of what he's poking at with this. The other thing I think that sort of goes back to something about that I harp on from episode to episode is this idea of, of us as observers changing the state of, uh, of Discworld uh, because Jelly Baby has, Jell has been stuck in a time loop kind of figuratively and then literally. Uh, and by observing it, we, we move it out of that and forward. It's quantum. As a side note, I did a bit of reading and found out that, so uh, apparently Terry did note that the Jelly Baby joke um, went over the heads of most American readers. He proposed as the American alternative uh, Hershiba. What? Oh, Hershibar. <laughs> See, we read the back of the book and I looked at the word and then I tried to pronounce it and I was like, Jelly Baby! <laughs> because I'm a giant Doctor Who nerd and that's a running joke in that too. I, I respect puns. I don't respect but there that are pun. limits. I don't think you should name your whole uh, mock Egyptian country after a uh, pun on a sweet. 
Yes. I also think that at least a sweet is better than a chocolate bar, which gets into a different level of issue. Mm, fair. Uh, yes. I think it, yeah. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's also, uh, the name is also sort of simultaneously that and also related to the, the Jed, which uh, is, I think, associated, if I'm reading this article correctly, with uh, Ptah and Osiris. Yeah, the Jed is, is a pillar symbol uh, that appears in a bunch of places, and it's about stability, which would, you know, relate to the kind of time loop stuff. But then, yeah. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. to the fifth <laughs> elephant in the room. Yeah, thank you. Wait, what? There's a fifth? I don't I know. Give up. I give up, I give up, I give up. I just know that's a book title. <laughs> that's the only thing I know. See, I thought that was just a joke on the fact that there's always four elephants on or under the room. There, there is, in there fact, a book called the. the f- cliff. All I'm going to say, because otherwise it's a spoiler, is there is in fact a book called the Fifth Elephant. So, at the top of the document, I suggested that when you when you record the intro to this, um, you make a Fifth Elephant joke, uh, since we have a guest. Yeah, I just realized I'm doing a callback to a joke we haven't actually recorded. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's a reannual uh, joke. Intro. <laughs> it's a reannual joke. And the best part is the audience will experience it in the right order. Yes. This is great. <laughs> because I was actually meaning to reference that, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> while, while, while we're talking about reannuals, I gotta say, Terry, you missed a big opportunity calling the reannual wine rewind. That's all. <laughs> It's a branding yeah. issue. When you posted it on the chat, I, I like made a like noise that was between that was I can't even describe what it was, but it was somewhere between like admiration, pain, and laughter. <laughs> the perfect reaction to a pun. Yep. So in terms of other tropes, um I thought so and this is where this book would have been better in the sort of British fantasy type thing and not trying to be Egyptian, etc. Because I I thought it was, it was funny how he was actually poking fun at some of the tropes about, like, the, the British royals with their putting people at ease and, like, ask them about their families, where Tepic is, like, trying to do that and just makes everyone deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it is, like, rather interesting how, like, Tepic relatively, like, for... Typically, we I think we see a lot in Discworld of, like, people being raised to be a certain thing and rebelling against it. But Tepic is just shoved into a job that he has, like... No, okay, I don't... I, like, he does not have any courtly training or anything. Which I don't think he actually needs. I think what he lacks is cultural upbringing within the context that he would just do what dios wants yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's almost presented as a a form of brainwashing uh and you know talk about the implications of that but it's sort of he lacks that and so he acts outside of dios's basically dios is staging a seven thousand year play with all the people playing the exact same parts on loop and because he grew up outside of it he isn't part of the play he isn't playing his part properly and things go wrong there's a uh there's a really chilling doctor who episode in there somewhere yeah 
I also loved the miniature painter as somebody who paints miniatures myself <laughs> and just the like number eight purple gloss. And that was hilarious to me. I think the other trope we also kind of engage with is the satire of sort and ephebe, uh, which kind of factors into other discussions. But there's there's a parody satire thing going on with ephebe being a parody Greece and sort being not sure what specifically he was trying to parody, but it ended up being a parody of British archaeologists and, in a way, the book. I, I think what was being attempted, maybe, was, like, a parody of, like, historical cultures who will, like, be neighboring to a larger culture, or to, like, a or hegemonic culture and get stuff wrong. I mean, if it was written today, I'd make a joke about, like, Weeboos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, Sort sort is a country that copies the aesthetics of gel without understanding any of the cultural significance. So they studied them immensely and decided to replicate all their behaviors, even the ones that don't make sense to replicate, uh, including what I can only assume is a joke on walk like an Egyptian yeah. uh, with the free-pointed walk. Yeah. Or I, that was a recurring yeah. joke, and I'm not a huge fan. Because even, even in gel, when... What's his face? Tepic is like, he had to remember how to do the walk and is like, oh no. The other thing that they, that this whole thing is lampooning is the, the new age uh, pyramid power thing. Oh yeah. That, the that ancient is. alien stuff? No, like, yeah, like, with, uh, like the, the, the idea. So there was this whole thing where like the, they came across a bunch of like, supposedly came across a bunch of animal corpses inside of uh, a pyramid. Supposedly, this is all bullshit, of course, uh, and they hadn't been decomposing. So there was this theory that if you made small pyramid shapes, it would prevent food from decomposing and also sharpen razors. Um, is that you know, what all was, of that was about? What the fuck? Yes. I was like, what is this razor thing it's, that they keep no, it's making fun of. It's making fun of the misinterpretation by, by white New Age people. Uh, of right you can say crocs it's okay this this podcast is a safe space you can say crocs oh the sandals yeah no as somebody who used to work next door to a new age bookstore pyramid power is one of those things that is like you, you you're like i wonder what base this has and then you find out that it was Invented in the 1930s by a Frenchman. Wait, pyramid power is also real for... There is so much of this book that flew right the fuck over my head. And I knew it kind of was. Like, I was watching it sail by, but I was like, you know what? I don't need to know. I'm just gonna categorize that under, I guess, some ancient alien stuff. Only it's pre-ancient aliens. I, I think part of that is, like, a discussion of parody versus satire. In that because this book falls more into parody than satire, it... If you lack the context, you don't know what it's referring to, whereas like a satire will generally make you aware of what it's satirizing through the process of satirizing yeah. it. And I you know, I think some of that is a is a timeliness thing. Like a reader reading this in nineteen eighty nine would absolutely know what pyramid power was, without a doubt. Whereas, you know, at the remove of twenty twenty, I think it, it falls flat. Like the most recent time I've heard it outside of like the fact that I used to work next to a new age bookstore, like the most recent time I've heard it in like popular context was a Mythbusters episode back in like their real early mm. days. Right. Yeah. 
We're talking like 2005, so 15 years ago. When they actually investigated like myths. Yeah. Yeah, back back when back when Mythbusters was about like, you know, looking into urban legends and not just blowing shit up. Yeah. Not that I complain about blowing yeah. shit up. <laughs> <laughs> Please, audience. I was going to say there's something in the number of ways that this book is like poking fun at like people who look at something and just come up with an explanation that isn't taking the cultural context into account or people, you know, appropriating things without understanding the culture, but there's not the understanding that he's doing the exact same thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a very self-aware book. It was funny because when when I was reading the sort bit and he was describing sort as that, I was like, everybody, you're describing what you're doing here. You're describing exactly what you've done with this work. So, going off of that, what this what this entire book like and it's and and gel reminded me of is that in um, there was a role playing game released in two thousand three. It is called Diana Warrior Princess. The idea of it is that it's taking the idea that like we view the Middle Ages as like sort of like like you know a time period that lasts like five hundred years as like one sort of interchangeable setting. And applying the same thing to the 20th century. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> oh, interesting. And that's what this feels like, but for, like, the region of Egypt, like, pre-Ptolemaic. I, I, that's the only thing that I can, like, find for, like, the depiction of Egypt in this is, like, at least we didn't get some Cleopatra jokes. Like, that's the only thing you I could really put in its favor. Suit jokes, though. Really, really weird hot suit joke, actually. <laughs> I might move this around in the timeline to maybe after our discussion, but uh, just so that I don't forget it because my brain is a soup. Um, readers, listeners, if you want a better take on this, uh, check out David McCauley's The Motel of the Mysteries, uh, which takes the style of uh, the Anglo-British making assumptions about ancient Egyptian culture, but applies it to a 1980s America frozen in time by being buried in, I think like 15 feet of junk mail. Um, Oh my God. I'm sorry. This, this just looks like, this looks like that customs of the Nakarama article, but a novel. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's a much better version of what Terry kind of tries to do. In terms of the Egypt stuff, in terms of other stuff, uh, you know, that's a different discussion. Do we want to talk about the button? So for me, that thing where Tepic goes away, he goes away for school. And the result of that is him not really belonging anywhere anymore. That he he adapts to the Ankh-Morpork culture, um, but he ends up still sort of being an outsider there. And he's still an outsider once he returns home to jail. Um, Amr, you might have more to say on this, um, but I think this definitely reflects at least some friends from like university and grad school expressed to me in terms of like leaving their homes and then kind of not, not really being able to, return to it in the same way. The the quote that that from this book that sticks out to me on that point is Tepic describing himself as a stranger in a familiar land, 
which is another biblical reference, but also really well written. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting bit there uh, where, like, Tepic grows out, grows up outside of his uh, home, which is, you know, his kind of formative years, right? Like, you don't really, there is a lot that, you know, is imprinted on you from growing up as a young kid, but most of the memories you consciously remember are from when he was living in Ankh-Morkpur, and that's most of his conscious thought and opinions and upbringing that kind of shaped who he is. Uh, and I need to find the exact line, but at one point he basically says that I am, uh, I was born in Jell, but I'm from Ankh-Morkpur because that's what formed him. That's the experience that consciously influenced him. And that's what kind of creates the mismatch. There was a, it was very little bit, but there was that line about the priests not wanting enthusiastic soldiers because smart, enthusiastic soldiers might just take charge. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. It's it's a very astute bit about kind of like the politics of power and how kind of being in power means keeping anyone who might want power from having a, a foot in. And speaking of power, the the thing that really stuck out to me was, again, relevant to the situation we are in now, uh, where when Kumi ascends to the to the the level of high priest and is advising Tracy, and she's just sort of ignoring him, uh, the the quote there is, he'd wanted changes. It's just that he'd wanted things to stay the same as well. Um, and I think that uh, applies to a certain tranche of voters in this country so broadly what did we like about the book because we've been we've been kind of trashing it a bunch um and i'm and we'll trash it a bunch more uh but if if you if you don't read it critically which of course we were and you should too because that's a good thing to do it's it's a fun read uh like it was a it was a fun book I also really liked seeing Tracy evolve and and there were a lot of good little character bits like like Gurn and Dill and the architects um, that it would be nice if they were transplanted into a better book. Timey-wimey universe cracking bullshit is my jam. So I was here for that. And also this book had like genuinely really good pacing for me at least, if if you think of the central thing being like this pyramid scheme that Thank you. messes up the universe. Uh, <laughs> if you think of that as being the central thing that this book is about, I think the plot was actually really beautifully structured around that. And like, yeah, that was that was some fun stuff. Yeah, I think that's two books in a row that like we've gotten pretty solid pacing throughout um which that, that was a problem in some of these earlier books yeah but yeah like this one is this one is paced well um god i, I like the, more pork mm-hmm. i felt like the the later part of the second arc or second act got a little bit squirrely pacing wise i was gonna say books one three and four i enjoyed the pacing of book two kind of started dragging on a little but mostly because it was interesting politics stuff but i didn't like because it was zooming in on a lot of the 
Egypt aspect of the politics stuff that it started feeling slow for me. I was like, I want this to be gone. But the rest of the books had really fun pacing. Like the assassin trial gave us just enough of the trial each time and then switched to a flashback and then cut back to the trial and we got a little bit of that and we get more context. And each segment was pretty well-paced in my opinion. I think I think that might be one of the, like the most clever like narrative things he's done. It was a really good opening for a book that like wanted to introduce a lot. Yeah, yes. it's interesting because it's introducing like three different timelines simultaneously and doing it really well. Like it was very clear what was going on at each point. Yep. Um, and, you know, each section was just the right length to kind of keep you keep you moving on. Oh, man, I will say I loved the time loop stuff, but sometimes it got really hairy in audio form because uh, I was switching between ebook and audio, and I kept feeling like, oh shit, did I mess up when I switched back? Because, like, literally the first time that the that something repeated, I was like, wait, we already had this. <laughs> or, or, like, I think one of the times where there were a bunch of, the first time there were a bunch of the same character, I was like, is it skipping? <laughs> it, was, it was very, it was a very strange experience. And my copy of the book has it laid out they got it laid out perfectly so that it's like each of those time loop sections is on like a top left hand page. And, <laughs> you know, I was reading it in bed oh, gosh. Like, right before going to sleep. And I was like, did I like blank out here? So we had the <laughs> same experience in different mediums. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely thought that. They had, like, printed this a small segment twice when I was reading it. I mean, I even knew, like, it, you could tell a time loop was coming, and I still was like, did I mess up? <laughs> uh, I'll say that I very much enjoyed the math of magic in it uh, the first time. Because my first exposure to Discworld magic, so, so going through and, like, yeah, he put some math on the blocks and they start floating. I'm like, and this is happening. I'm cool with this. Uh, and, like... I'm the type of person who goes to like Marvel superhero movies and they start going, and now we're going to go into the quantum realm to do this stuff. I'm like, yes, give me that pseudoscience bullshit. <laughs> and all my engineering friends are like, but that doesn't make sense. I'm like, superhero. <laughs> and it's kind of the same feeling here where there's just enough science where I love it. And anyone would like, start, people would start like complaining about it. But no, this is great. I love this. So that, that was very much my jam. Uh, Assassin's Guild stuff I enjoy. I mean, I, like, grew up as the Assassin's Creed games were coming out, and I used to play all of those. So, like, it felt very much reminiscent of that. Uh, I love that the Assassin's Guild didn't teach them how to kill. It taught them how to inhume, but never have to actually do the killing part of, like, letting go of your morality and taking another person's life. They're like, you can figure the hard part out in the <laughs> field. Yeah. I like time bullshit. Time bullshit was fun. Uh, death. Death was cool. I love the deaf showed up and said, I've given up on trying to pretend to be what you expect because people expect too many contradictory <laughs> things. So I'm just going to be a black cloak and a scythe and you're going to deal with I it. I am a little disappointed <laughs> by that. My boy Death has been working customer service since the start of the disc. That's fair. And he is a legend. I'm not going to I uh, liked the thing where Death was coming to different people as what they expected because if he turns up in gel as death in a black robe with a scythe they have no cultural yeah. context for that whereas that very much does fit into a different cultural context so in that respect it was like 
as, as I wish Death's form was like more than just kind of a, a Western centric view of what mm-hmm. death is. I, but like, I don't necessarily think it, like, I like the idea of death being one form. I just wish it was perhaps a more creative or death just looked at every different culture and was like, I'm going to do my yeah. own thing. I'm going to be my own identity. You don't define what I look like. I would have enjoyed that more. I think especially the fact that he changed to doing this in this book specifically is what yeah. kind of bugged me. Oh, is that the first time he's done this? Because in, in the big death okay. book that we read before, he it was set up that he changes form for different people depending on what they expect. I think even the like form where he's like part dung beetle was mentioned in Mort, if I remember correctly. I think that, I think they mentioned the crocodile. But... One of those. Something was mentioned in like they mentioned some of his other forms that he takes, and I'm like, and we stopped doing that in this book for some reason. <sighs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, no. If you if you like the like. Uh, every every episode, we, we every book we get to death. I just posted the chat of or or a chat of like, yeah. And honestly, when we're done here, oh god, you should just read Mort. Mort is like Mort's a good book. Mort's Mort really, good. really good. Book. Mort's good. And hopefully, you've been listening to this podcast and heard us gush about Mort. And if you haven't listened to that episode. Please do so. It's a great episode. By the reannuals, by the time you hear this, I will have already heard <laughs> 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 oh. Who knew that reannuals would be the joke that came the back again The reannuals are the jokes that just retroactively keep on giving. <laughs> but we have to then make them, otherwise we cause a causal loop issue. <laughs> I mean, listen, if a causal loop issue wrecks for this timeline, I think that might not be a bad thing. <laughs> Oh. We should just plant a joke earlier in the episode, or plant a laugh at one of these jokes earlier in the episode, and then have one of these jokes at <laughs> the beginning of that laugh. <laughs> uh, the magic of editing. Just there's a joke that there's just silence after the joke, and then someone whispers, "We laughed earlier." Listeners, please refer to the intro music here. I mean, there's a lot of plot in this book, which has been a complaint before that there isn't. And I think he's starting to figure out how to more effectively thread lore dumps into plot as opposed to sort of being like, here's plot, here's lore, here's plot, here's lore. Uh, And this is a seed for what stuff becomes later. And so seeing it in the context of the the bullshit Egyptologist stuff really painful uh, for me. I liked the fact that the mummies weren't evil. They were just normal people who were maybe upset about having been locked in a dark tomb for a while, but were happy to get out and meet their relatives and help out the scion of the line. Like that it was, you know, they really could have easily been, you know, the the mummies come out and start wreaking havoc upon the city. Um, but it it wasn't that, and that I really liked. It was doing something different. Yeah, let's crack into the part that has been making all of us really uncomfortable. Yeah, let's bite that three hundred three bookworm. What? Of three hundred three as a caliber of yeah. Bullet. 
there is that I think it's one of my favorite footnote footnote footnoted footnotes uh, is the three hundred three bookworm. I I must have glossed over you can it. Eat an entire bookshelf so fast, right? It hits the because wall. it only exists in magical libraries, and it has to oh, eat beautiful. them. It has to eat through them really fast, otherwise it gets affected by the 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 thomic energy. Was that in this book? Yeah. Yeah. It's a footnote. It's a it's a footnote. Like there were a couple of footnotes that I don't think were properly like hyperlinked or something. Uh, it's because it's like I scrolled through these and I'm like I don't remember how. It's of a these. footnoted footnote, which is a is a Terry special. Uh, At the end of the footnote, you uh, have to uh, click the double asterisk to get the second footnote. See, this is why I read on Dead Tree. In in Dead Tree, it is a it is a cross inside the single asterisk. Yeah, this is, this is one reason why I enjoy the dead tree. Well, and if you do the audiobook, they just say it, but in a slightly like quieter and faster voice. Which is a good way to do footnotes. But I like didn't know the extent of the footnotes in Discworld at first, because like when I first started reading Discworld stuff, it mm. was just audiobooks. It's that it feels like the footnotes are doing on the side what Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy does in the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of like just random asides that are fun facts mm-hmm. that are not particularly directly related. And I feel like reading them slightly faster is exactly how I would read a Hitchhiker's Galaxy. Right. Yeah. It's like the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy defines the 303 bookworm as blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah. Just randomly there. Never comes up again. My favorite thing about the footnotes is when he makes a joke in a footnote and then puts a second footnote to explain the joke. And I'm like, really, my dude? <laughs> Uh, just because I opened it, my book to that section and on in the same two-page spread is, I think, my favorite academic joke in the entire book, which is the, the trouble with you, Ibid, is that you think you're the biggest bloody authority on everything, which is such a an academic joke. Yeah, it, it I love me. that joke. No more dancing around the issue. We got to talk about we got to talk about the meat of the the issue. So. Guess the question I see on this fancy manchy framework is: Is there anything that hasn't aged? Well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, as I was reading, I just kind of to help me compartmentalize it and maintain my own sanity. I created a list of every time I said, "Really, really, this is what you're doing." <laughs> I'm not gonna read all that list because that's not a productive use of time. But it's just a thing that I did through. Uh, it took me. About one page in with the magic pyramids to be like, all right, so we're doing this. Uh, And then 17 pages in when I read the sentence, a bunch of nomads with their towels on their head. I almost wanted to put the book down. Oh, God. I got there Uh, and I was like, oh, oh no. And like, there's a bunch more like that. Um, There's a couple of stuff like hieroglyphics being described as a bunch of squiggly lines, uh, etc. And I mean, honestly, it... We mentioned before how Swartz is put in as the civilization which studies the aesthetics of uh, gel and then copies it without understanding the cultural significance. And that's a lot of what happens in this book. There's a lot of the aesthetics of ancient Egypt, at least. A lot of the aesthetics of a conglomerate cultural perception of what ancient Egypt was over a vast period of dynasties distilled down into a singular view. Uh, and we get that in the use of pyramids. Uh and as as burial chambers and mummification, we get that in a lot of the uh, terminology like pharaohs and the various priesthoods and whatnot. Uh, there's 
There's some like slight jokes throughout where like he talks about the complete set of gods, but capitalizes set after the Egyptian deity set. Stuff like that, where it kind of permeates through the text in this weird surface level aesthetic without ever delving into the significance of what those cultural elements implies because it's exploring what those cultural elements prevented. Um, That's a really good way to describe it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of parts of the book, and like that's why I mentioned that I enjoyed the book a lot more going back in plot summary, because there's a lot of details to the book that I like, but or rather there's a lot of overall concepts of the book I like, but there's not a lot of details that I can handle reading within the context. Uh, what this book, like one, one of the questions on our framework is kind of what is the moment that made the book click? And for me, the book kind of made sense from page one because it is a very classic, uh, it's a very classic story written by usually American or British white authors writing about Europe, or Middle Eastern, East Asian, African cultures, uh, where they take a civilization, talk about how it's held back by tradition, and talk about how breaking through that cycle of tradition through kind of change and modernization, which is usually defined by a Western standard. Uh, in this case, Ifib kind of does that initially, but then turns out to be a parody. So mostly Ankh-Morpur and their ideals is kind of bringing in stuff like plumbing, which is treated as a very Ankh-Morporian concept rather than as existing elsewhere, even though, spoiler alert, the ancient Egyptians had plumbing. Uh, and also Pythagorean math. But anyways, um, yeah, so it's, it's a classic story. So like from kind of a couple pages and I knew exactly the cycle this book was taking and it took that cycle to a T because it's been told in a lot of formats. It kind of pushes forward a lot of tropes and ideas subconsciously of like non-Western uh, where the West is defined as Europe and uh, America being societies being held in the past and requiring access to Western ideas and knowledge to become more civilized, for lack of a better word, is what's usually used. And it's not outright stated in that way here, but it is heavily implied in a lot of concepts. That that puts a lot of my trepidation into more crystal clear words. Going off of that, Aaron mentioned earlier that it's like we get that like we get that thing of like that the civilization has been held in sort of a stasis until we until the the reader comes into it, which is that's how a lot of colonizers would approach non-Western European cultures that oh they've been that this has been this way. And it is isolated here until we are able to interact with it and fuck it up. Man. Yeah. Um, and I like just from like a narrative standpoint, the fact that it's like this doesn't change until we view it at one point. It's yeah. I mean, we there's only one type of novel I can think where the um, where the reader intruding into it does not change anything and everything just goes through its style. And that is the Cardassian circular myth, but that is not a real style of literature. Um, I mean, unless, waiting for Godot. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, but I mean, it, it's the fact that it's specifically put in here. We're getting this uh, narrative in a book that is modeled off of a that that is parodying a culture that, especially. Uh, British authors have had a rather unhealthy fascination with. This is kind of 
putting a new lens on, and we're going back to earlier books here, sorry, but the thing where Two Flower comes in and changes Ankh Morpork for good, the lens this puts on that is making me like it even less, like it less, because early Ankh Morpork feels like it's trying to be swords and sandals, and late Ankh Morpork, wow, I don't know how to pronounce this town name, by the way, uh, but late, late Ankh Morpork is just London. So, mmm. That's weird that as it civilizes, quote-unquote, I think it's mostly just that if Terry Pratchett writes about a city for too long, it's going to become London, but also it, that's a weird extra layer to it in my head now. So, at, like, as I was kind of looking at this book, I wanted to kind of bring a more cohesive view to this discussion. As someone who's not read any Discworld or any Terry Pratchett, that was kind of hard. So I went and did some digging, and there isn't really much discussion of race in Terry Pratchett's work that I could find, uh, which kind of made it hard for me to approach this holistically. Uh, it seems for the most part that Terry is not ever outright shitty about race, but it seems like there's various points where there's a lack of self-examination, which is what this entire book feels like. It doesn't feel like he was trying to be malicious about anything, but rather lacked any sort of self-examination or self-awareness about the culture, which is, you know, how a lot of racism manifests for most people. Most people aren't being super malicious or super outright, but rather are unaware of how their behavior is perpetuating harmful stereotypes. And that's kind of what this book does. Uh, I think the kind of perfect example of that is the opening of the Book of the Dead, which is book two, starts with a extended gag, uh, quote unquote, based on a British TV show uh, in which Dios is outfitting Tepic for his first appearance with a assortment of items, and the gag is meant to be how Tepic is trying to carry 50 different objects and can't balance them all. But every single object is painted as a varied holy object with an important title but no actual explained significance. And so this gag on a British TV show, which is a very funny bit of physical comedy, becomes a weird, oh, haha, look at all these random, insignificant cultural items that we will never touch on again. And... I think that's kind of roughly the pattern of the book. Things that could have been interesting gags in a different context become directly stereotypical and harmful of another culture. And that's that's in particular a scene that could have been so much more because it's it, it's almost a mirror of when Tepic is outfitting himself for the Assassin's Guild trial and he yeah. ends up with so much stuff that he collapses. And it's like God, the scene could have been good, and it was not. On the issue of racism, I think it actually is explicitly dealt with at some point in in his books. He says something along the lines of that nobody's nobody's racist in the Discworld because it's too much fun to be speciesist. Um, Which is mm. oof. I have yeah, so like that's the other thing is that was the only other mention of racism. I completely forgot about it till now, and that carries its own set of issues. Uh, the discussion of fantasy racism just being a kind of uh, whitewashed, for lack of a better word, or sanitized excuse to be racist, but it's not against real people, is a commonly discussed things by people who have put it into a lot more cohesive words than I, especially in the TTRPG and D and D scene, talking about how kind of racial essentialism, speciesism, etc. Uh, extends to that, especially when, for the most part, like, at least from what I've seen and from what I've read, most of the characters are white or 
written as white because it's written by a white person who is not going to be the best at writing non-white characters. Uh, and so that ends up being with, well, humans aren't racist, but we also only see white humans, so there isn't really a space for non-white people to exist. Uh, and in situations like that, non-people of color generally end up uh, associating with and identifying with a lot of the features of the non-human races, and we see that a lot in you know role-playing games and whatnot, uh, there, where people substitute in like a fancy language as Elvish for their own language and play with it like that because that's the experience they relate to. Uh, and so that's kind of where we get into the issues of like, it's a little bit lacking that level of self-awareness and reflection. And, you know, Terry, in later, again, in later books, Terry takes that very same thing and is like, stop doing that. That's bad. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the spe- the speciesism specifically, not, not what you just described. Like a lot of right. the books are like, pointing at that and saying stop doing that Mm -hmm. the same way that he isn't being directly malicious about race but is kind of being like passively harmful about it it's still continuing with misogyny in these two um i don't love the handmaiden stuff i could do without the jokes about what they get up to or what they're trained for and the I don't like that the only woman assassin explicitly is this overly made up overly corseted femme fatale we're getting we're getting better women for sure but the books where I really really like the women tend to be the ones where there's a bunch of them in one place yeah and the there's also the intersection there where it's the the thing of where Tracy becomes you know more alluring etc when she's dressed in Ankmore pork style clothing which is yeah there's there's a lot there uh on multiple levels it, it feels like yeah, I think I think there's also a couple other like non-racism uh, elements that that did not age well throughout the book, uh, but for the most part, those kind of get overshadowed by this, and they just it's hard to point out the misogyny because there's just a distinct lack of characters to be misogynistic to for most of the. For book. me, it's part of an ongoing there pattern. Two, there is one woman character who lasts more than a scene, really. Yeah, and. There's there's one line that was about, like, the philosophers talking about, you know, tra- uh, Tracy's not allowed in there because women can't come to the those events because their brains overheat. And yeah. It's, it's meant to be, like, a, a satire of, you know, philosophers being a boys club, but it doesn't ever challenge it, so it falls straight into doing the thing without... Yeah. Examining the thing. Examining And it. you haven't suffered through wizards books, but this is also why women usually aren't wizards and it's the worst thing. Well, the why it's the justification for women mm. not being wizards, sort of, but it's also uh, a lot of other bad... You know what? You've listened to those episodes. <laughs> You've probably heard me yeah. complain about yeah. this. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm over all of these misogynistic institutions. We can... Stop lampshading the misogyny and just don't talk about it, please. I think sort of my final <laughs> transition note is that it's hard, like, or let me rephrase that, examining systems of oppression that you are not a part of 
is a business that will often lead to you perpetuating some of the harm caused by that. And that happens in this book uh, on a couple axes where Terry attempts to examine sort of some of the stuff going on in terms of both misogyny, for example, with mocking uh, or where critiquing sort of the, the treatment of women in, in jail and then like saying, but look how much better they're treated now. And that ends up making doing harm by making statements about sort of what women should or should not be like, for example, and with a lot of just the treatment of gel as a culture. Uh, in general, like that's going back to bringing back to the speciesism thing, treating it as a world without racism and or sexism and or what have you when you're not part of that group is just the way to do it. So you don't examine those stories because unless you're willing to, you know, get consultants and do the work, do it critically and maybe even hire a extra writer to work with you it's not going to go well most of the time we also could have done with a lot fewer tepic boners oh yeah 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 i would have been okay with zero tepic boners yeah no i'm i would have preferred zero but yeah i mean i think to kind of wrap that up like overall i wish this book had been rewritten without any of the egyptian aesthetics the sort of time travel metaphor and the literal use of time magic to uh demonstrate why the place is stuck in time would be a really cool story on its own without the need for using that aesthetic like i think there's a lot of cool bits we were talking about and the bits we were enjoying that could be very fun. And I think a lot of the writing of plot could have become even more enjoyable if he was writing a culture he was more comfortable writing in. Yeah. Uh, Or tried, like, I I think a lot of the morgue scenes, which were a joy, could have been an even bigger joy in a more explicitly British or generic European setting. Yeah. He's really good with his, I mean, this is another one of those things where just I wish a lot of white British writers would stick... (laughs) To their world building just keep it to white british i mean they can do like really good like criticisms of the culture they're in but then once they expand outside it starts getting extremely messy uh i'm not at all bitter about jk rowling right now i haven't <laughs> Minna, talked you're about always that bitter recently about that. What, what what you 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 don't think you, you don't think that your your magic school set in japan should it completely transliterate to Magic place. Uh, also, Castello Bruxo is not only all of South America is in a Portuguese language school, but also it's like witch castle. Oh, uh, but yeah, Re- reading this, it felt like I was reading. <laughs> reading this, I felt like I was reading British fantasy, and like it even dealt with issues. Like I felt like I was reading a British royalty scene. Or watching a scene of politics from a show like The Wire or something, you know, like, or British royalty being like political figureheads while someone else is pulling all the strings, stuff like that. And that tug and pull, uh, the narrative of religion versus progress is very much a kind of Western narrative that kind of centers around the Galileo Mm -hmm. versus church mythos type situation, which is not even that clear cut because he was in trouble with the church for calling the Pope in an imbecile basically or a simpleton rather than his <laughs> science stuff uh but like that is is a very western narrative whereas kind of one of the biggest periods of progress in 
Middle East is around the Islamic empires. Uh, so it, it feels like an attempt to write a British story with, uh, or an Egyptian story, but it's actually a British story and it puts on the Egyptian aesthetics. And if he dropped those aesthetics, this story would have been a lot of fun. Like I would have been laughing at the funny British royalty doing all this very funny, weird, wacky, nonsensical stuff. Oh yeah, and and it's clearly it's clearly British royalty too because it's that it's that thing where like the British royals like try to be be one of the people and just make everybody deeply uncomfortable. Um, yeah, and like that's that's Tepic interacting with the um, citizens of Gel. Actually, I would have loved a story that had like. This this story where one of the past royals had done that and it had been awkward because Tepic feels more like uh, someone who would attempt to do that and would be more successful because he grew up amongst people rather than like growing up in the castle and descending down to be like, hi, how, how do you do, fellow youths? Yes. <laughs> Just everything Terry Pratchett writes, no matter what he tries to flavor his setting with, is just a parody of English society. I think the more he leans into that, the better I feel about his world building. For sure. Do do we want to talk about some some interesting interesting references to other bullshit? <laughs> so, uh, should the newer readers cover stuff first? Because uh, uh, then I can back clean up. Honored guest, if you'd go first. <laughs> I got to meet Death. Death is cool. Uh, I mean, I don't know what else my reference feature or past events beyond what I know. Ankhmor Kapoor and the Assassin's Guild seem cool. Uh, and Death was good. Death was the only part that I knew, because I, I, I read this before listening to the podcast, so I didn't know I didn't know that Ankhmor Kapoor was an established city going in. Uh, so I thought it was just in a place, because it had Ankh in its name, I assumed that had to do with the pyramids and the Egyptian stuff uh, when I was first reading this. And then... Uh, later found out through listening to the podcast that it was established in part of the greater world. Uh, but yeah, death. Death is fun. Death is death is the best. We get a little bit of building on the um, of our wonderful page-long footnote from the last book because we get more guild stuff. Yeah. Listen. Listen. Yeah. In like 15 minutes, I get to read the back cover of Guards. It's finally here! <laughs> it's so close. I We've love been so so you for so I long. I love the building. I love that we're. I love that we're continuing to see how this city is only lawless because of the guilds and the structure that set up, and not because of the watch. It's really setting the watch up as like a defunct and useless yeah. entity. Spoilers! Spoilers! Oh, buddy, I already figured that one out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I trust Justin to have figured that much out. Thank you. I, I've read one book and, and have figured out that there is no actual government in this place doing anything effective. Oh, that is not there the is a government. There, there is a there government. There is. It's just a complicated. It is. It's it's a Rube Goldberg machine that Vetinari has set. Well, yes. Um, Does it do I, anything? I, I think I can I can do this joke. I can do this joke. I've read enough that I can do yes. this joke. Ockmore Park is ruled by the simple rule of one man one vote there is one man and he has the vote yep <laughs> there i did it and that's that's good and uh veterinary is definitely the type to set things in motion uh such that everybody else thinks that it was their idea mm-hmm. yeah uh, which i don't think is he a spoiler he uses people 
and their self-interest. He balances a bunch of different people's self-interest against each other like a house of mm-hmm. cards, and it mm-hmm. stays up most of the time. 90% of the time it stays up. So Veterinari does what <laughs> uh, does through tact and cunning what Dios did through force of will. Kind of, yeah. I don't know if I'd call it tact, but yes. A facade of tact, I'm guessing. Like, at least pretend convincing people that he's on their side. Yeah, no, for sure. Veterinari is is a tyrant, uh, but... Is he voted in by democracy? No. (laughs) Heck no. (laughs) So they didn't bet for him? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that, that was a... Oh, and I gotta say, I gotta say, you know heading into election season and we're recording this uh the day after super tuesday um oh gosh that see that that scene where they're talking about uh the vet um oh god that that you know everyone can vote you know except for women Women. and children and people we don't like and outsiders and um people we don't particularly like it definitely feel like the the part that aged uh, the aged the best in the entire book. Yeah. Except for women, of course. Er, er, everyone has he has it again. Certain now that things were amiss. The vet. Except for women, of course, and children, and and criminals, and slaves, and stupid people, and people of foreign extraction, and people disapproved of for uh, various reasons, and lots of other people, but everyone apart from them. It's yeah. very enlightened civilization. Oh. Okay. God. That's I just such remembered a good... this. this mm. I just remember this quote existed, and we need to read it out because we need to make sure that this makes it into the recording. And I'm trying to f- the comma one. Oh yeah. Oh oh, inserting the significant comma. God, that is yes. The, yes. That is I I I like had to yes. set down my phone, walk away, and just say wow. Yes, that was a good line. Yeah, the, the dead drunk assassins. There were some really good jokes yeah. in that. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, oh, there we go. There we go. Found it. However, assassins black doesn't frighten everyone. And in certain sections of society, there is a distinct cachet in killing an assassin. It's rather like smashing a sixer in Conquers. Broadly, therefore, the three even now lurching across the desert planks of the Brass Bridge were dead, drunk assassins, and the men behind them were bent on inserting the significant comma. (laughs) It's beautiful. Can I read you my other favorite assassin joke in this? My other favorite is that Tepic is wearing priests. Priests were metal-reinforced overshoes, they saved your souls. This oh, is God, an assassin yeah. joke. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. I love it. I love assassin humor. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought there was an interesting bit where there's some interesting parallels between this one and Weird Sisters in that um, they both have the, the kind of prodigal son returning home uh, and then abdicating a throne. Um, that Tepic and Tom John aren't that far apart in that way. Plus, their father haunting the whole yeah, book. Yeah, Weird Sisters is a lot better. Read read that book. 
basically, the recommendation here is listen to my summary at the start of this and then don't pick up the book. <laughs> that is accurate. We read it, so you don't necessarily have to. Speaking of reannual jokes, uh, one of the things that this really sort of cements in place is the the idea of faith creating the gods, and I, I had to go shake a drawer and, and curse loudly at that. that. Um, <laughs> I think this might also be the first mollusk of your choice reference. The, the world is a mollusk of your choice. Uh, a twist on the world is your oyster. Uh, oh, yeah. We covered the 303 bookworm. It's this joke. Uh, lots more Terry bullshit no- uh, footnotes. I love the uh, one about the fastest beings alive who yeah. were so fast that by the Heisenberg certainty principle, they did not know where or what they were until they crashed. Yeah. But in that moment, they knew exactly where they were, dead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a good favorite reference. I think Reannuals is my favorite because it's produced so much joy this yeah. episode. It's a good bit. Is there anything else that's important to talk about? Um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about, like, I feel like that the, this book in particular, it's just, it made cogent something that I've been thinking is that, like, I think Terry has these ideas that are maybe better as short stories, but he wants to put them in a novel because he doesn't maybe, because it, it's, I don't, because it's, I'm probably because novels make more money. Um, it's probably the easiest thing to do. It feels like the pyramid builders are one good like twenty like fifteen to twenty page short story, but it just gets sprinkled in throughout a novel. Yeah, and and Dylan Gurn. And it's just like I feel like that there's I think we formulated the plot of a much better book throughout the course of this recording. <laughs> or at least a like a a better timeline where this is a much more like possibly memorable or treasured book but we we went on we went on our timeline here um who knows maybe in the maybe in that timeline where this is a parody of british monarchy and doesn't have all this we don't make this podcast now hear me out dylan gurn get hired by death to appease the people who die who don't want to move on to the neverworld by creating better clothes for them oh gosh I really enjoy Dylan and Gern, but what I enjoy almost what I enjoy more about them is like how relatable to the Kaimon starting to like really get invested in them is. I feel him on a deep level. This is the same level where like me and somebody in my French class started like live blogging the relationships of like the characters in our French book. Uh, just like where you're so deeply bored that you make your own fun by starting to relate to these characters that aren't really ones that you would otherwise care about. Oh yeah. Tepikamon feels like someone who is sitting on his couch, but there's only one TV channel for one soap opera that he's forced to watch every day. Yeah. And he makes the best of it, goddammit. Yeah. He's me, sitting for an hour, watching Japanese 70s Mega Man without subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a thing that happened to me. I was very bored. I didn't, I don't do bars well. <laughs> I, I think, I think we've already discussed a lot of, like, our alternate loves of this book. Can, let's let us uh, adjourn for a brief uh, a brief visit to the fan fiction corner. There there isn't much. I don't think there's much we ship in this book um, because we don't want a Luke Skywalker Leia Organa situation. 
Um, But I wanted Assassin's Book so bad. You and me both, buddy. Yeah. They're just, they're like affably professional in humors. And that's such my level of bullshit. That or just like more of the, more of the school stuff. Because I mean, I'm British boarding school genre, like the British boarding school genre is... Yeah, I've only ever really encountered it in, like, semi-parodical forms. Like, I've run into it a bunch in, like, Diana Wynne-Jones stuff, where, like, she's not actually doing it, but referencing it very strongly. And that felt really familiar and kind of fun. Yeah, I think I think it's a genre that mostly just only gets parodied now, because it's just, like... Well, because we're, we're reading it in, like, the 2000s yeah. instead of, like, when those books... And we're also American, yeah. instead of, like, being British people who were reading uh, when those books were, like, really popular kids' stuff. Should we put a uh, a flare cap on this and uh, rate the book and move on? Uh, I would give it three and a half out of nine N-dimensional pyramid faces. I'm going to give it three out of ten sacred crocodiles. I would give this book... 342 out of 700 mummified ancestors. I'm going to go with 13 out of 28 Tipikai on the Greats. And Amr, what would you rate this book? I would give it 4 out of 24 hours in a human lifespan. <laughs> Deep cut. Nice. Uh, that's good. Now, we have officially finished Pyramids. <laughs> I'm going to open up a new browser tab. <gasps> I'm going to Amazon.com. gets to read the blurb. I'm so excited. This bit is oh, not on any of the live is... episodes. I mean, this bit is on every episode live until now, and I am so glad to experience it in person. It's, it's, I, I don't <laughs> think we started to, until Mort. Yeah, no, I don't it, think we did. Yeah. That, that, that was this my joke. This is the one that we're so excited for Justin to get to, to like this book specifically is the Justin book. So yeah. this is one of those things that like, okay, so I just, I just looked up guards, guards, and I feel like I want that trade paperback because that is a much better cover. Um, the one with the the dragon or the Stephen Briggs one? The the dragon one is fine, but this is the one I found. I'll post it in chat. Yeah, that's a variant that I was unfamiliar with. I've never seen so, that variant. It's very good. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Okay, but yes, yeah, so I'm going to go with the dragon cover's back cover because I'm going to guess that's the more uh, believable one. We are in book eight. We are still in 1989. We are in still in books that were made before I was born. Guards, Guards, a novel of Discworld. Welcome to Guards, Guards, the eighth book in Terry Pratchett's legendary Discworld series. Long believed extinct. A superb specimen of Draco Nobilis, noble dragon for those who don't understand italics, has appeared in Discworld's greatest <laughs> city. Not only does this unwelcome visitor have a nasty habit of charboiling everything in its path, in rather short order it is crowned king. It is a noble dragon, after all. How did it get there? How is the unique and supreme lodge of the elucidated brethren of the Ebon Knight involved? Can the Ankh-Morpork city watch restore order and the patrician of Ankh-Morpork to power? Magic, mayhem, and a marauding dragon. Who could ask for anything more? We're here! <laughs> Chewy, we're home. That summary did not emphasize what I thought yeah, it was. Yeah, either. 
I could read the, I, I'm just going to read the other one now mentally, but that's... I feel like the episode should just cut after the, we're here! <laughs> Duly noted. We finally get to this book after six plus months of being teased with this bullshit. I should have read Guards Guards before reading this book just so I could be in on it for oh this recording. God. I'm a... Uh about to mark on what my third or fourth read of this book i think my yeah, third read i've lost count well i mean for me that is justin don't click on that link there's spoilers okay so we, we, did, we, did, we went through an entire link. episode without me having to take off my headphones and go la 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 uh, um, yeah. yeah but while we're on mic um i do want to thank Amr for for joining us this yeah, evening absolutely because yeah. you were an absolute joy <laughs> thank you yeah, so much thank for, for me. reading this I, book and I joining think, us yeah i think i speak for all of us when uh you have an open or you have at least an invitation to please rejoin us at some point with a much more frolicking book mm-hmm. <laughs> i hope one day to take yes one that we like better <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to have already listened to the Mort episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is just the bit that keeps getting. I love it. The complete discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show on Twitter at atuinpod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. 